Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Lee Frame, Director of the Integrative Medicine Programs here at GW. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the Office's Administrative Director. Today, we're going to talk about cultural competency and nutrition with Evelise Capo, PharmD, Director of Culinary and Spanish Content for the T. Colin Campbell Center for Nutrition Studies. The Center for Nutrition Studies is a nonprofit committed to increasing awareness of the extraordinary impact that food has on the health of our bodies, our communities, and our planet. She's also a certified facilitator for the Physicians Committee Food for Life program. Dr. Capo practices culinary medicine in her businesses, the Food Pharmacy and Pharmacia en la Cocina in Florida. It's good to have you here with us. Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, Dr. Capo. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, and we are excited to have you and talk about nutrition. Everyone knows I, I'm very excited to talk about nutrition. <laughs> yes, it's it's a definitely an important topic and uh, one that um, is very controversial at times. It, it can be, absolutely. Um, so what got you into the field of nutrition and how did you end up in culinary medicine? Well, um, I was working as a pharmacist in long-term care, in a long-term care pharmacy, and, you know, right after hours of reviewing medication profiles, I kept thinking, you know, there has to be a better way. I can do so much more to help these patients. I didn't want to be part of the problem anymore. I wanted to be an agent of change. And this happened, um, to give you a little background, after about a year into my plant-based journey, um, I had changed my eating habits right after having my second child and going through a very unhealthy pregnancy, I just, I started to research about the link between nutrition and disease and felt very conflicted about my role of what I thought about was healthcare, but was actually sick care. And mm -hmm. I was, I, you know, I just, I felt I needed to change and I was searching for, for my tribe for answers. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I think a lot of people that come on our podcast from various different backgrounds, that's sort of what happens is they realize that the traditional model of healthcare is exactly what you said. It's sick care. Uh, it's not about health and wellness, and we need to expand it to include health and wellness. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, after going through years of training and studying, you, you, you feel like it, in limbo sometimes, like, what do I do now? You know, how can I, I can't, you know, go back and start again. So like, what do I do with the knowledge that I have with the experience? And so that's how I found Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. And uh, I applied to become, you know, one of their Food for Life instructors uh, and I also, I was searching for, for so many leaders in the, in the plant-based community and, and offering to translate their materials and just, I just wanted to help in some way. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad you bring that up because that's one of the things that I really want to talk to you about because I think we, you know, we've talked about nutrition before in this podcast, but we we don't always talk about the issue of cultural competency and how do you communicate with various different cultures. And that's something that you're clearly focusing on. So if you could tell us a little bit about why you, you combine uh, culinary medicine with cultural competency and how you do that. 
Sure. So, you know, culinary medicine is, is evidence-based. It's not just about cooking um, flavorful meals, but really targeting um, the root of disease and how we can uh, prevent and reverse these conditions with food, with nutrition, and also lifestyle. And I am Puerto Rican. You know, I grew up in, in Puerto Rico, and I'm very aware of uh, my culture and how different cultures uh, see things in, in different ways. And I think sometimes, you know, for a lot of people, Latinos, you know, it could be like a homogeneous block, and we have to chip away from that. So, you know, even within a certain culture, there's so many different uh, practices, different uh, different cuisine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it. I think it's we have to to become aware um, of these differences and integrate them into the treatments and into the approach that we have with these communities. So basically, it sounds like what you're saying to me is you need to have a personalized prescription for culinary medicine. You do. You do. And, you know, for me, I when I started doing this, um, I was following PCRM did a great job putting together curriculums for us to teach in the community, but I was being contacted by different groups that didn't feel that mold of what, you know, we were supposed to teach, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I had um, a group of young women. These were young, uh, Hispanic, mostly uh, single moms that, um, that they were being offered this program to teach them how to empower themselves, how to cook differently, how to uh, take care of their kids. And I was invited to present for them. And I had to create, you know, a brand new curriculum for them because it, you know, what we were being told to teach, you know, these items were not things that were accessible to them. They couldn't recognize these uh, ingredients or these items. So I had to figure out a way that um, we, we could all be on the same level of understanding and, um, uh, also that they could identify with the information. That makes perfect sense. I wonder if you could give us a few examples. What did you swap out or swap in to that curriculum to make it more culturally competent? So, you know, for instance, a lot of the, you know, the, the Latino cuisine, uh, the base of it, we use a lot of beans mm-hmm. and corn, um, some vegetables that might not be, uh, uh, a lot of people might not be familiar, like root vegetables like yuca and, and uh, malanga, which are, are super flavorful. We're lucky here in Florida where I live, we have access to a lot of these items. So just showing them how to prepare these these uh, foods with no oil, you know, so mm. instead of frying, we're baking um, and using the spices to give, you know, to give it character and, uh, you know, using our turmeric instead of, uh, the annatto with oil, for instance, to, to mm-hmm. cook the rice, um, showing them that you can make these meals, you know, for your little ones, you don't have to make a different meal for kids than you do adults and they can all cook together, eat together. Um, so, you know, there were so- some of the, the basics to just, um, also, you know, there are some items that they might not be familiar with that, that we want to introduce because wherever they live, that would be more affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, even plantains, for instance, 
Uh, in Puerto Rico, we eat uh, fried plantains all the time. So now, you know, we can we can make the tostones or the mofongo by just boiling them first and then season them and baking instead of frying. Mm-hmm. I was waiting for you to say the P word. <laughs> <laughs> I love them so much. <laughs> Absolutely. And ripe plantains, you can cook the green plantains, the ripe plantains. Mm-hmm. They're just amazing. I actually uh, substitute uh, plantains for bananas in a lot of recipes, even pancakes, and they turn out amazing. Ooh. That sounds delicious. And plantains, as many will probably realize, are an excellent source of fiber and particularly resistant starch, which we all know the gut microbiome loves. So another reason to eat plantains. Yes, yes. And, and they, you know, they're, they're, we can even grow them, you can grow the, the plants. So, you know, depending on how, where you live, obviously, but um, it's something that uh, a lot of people might not be familiar with. They just see the the ones in the bags in the frozen section. They're like, "What is that?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's it's super easy to prepare. Excellent. You also brought up another topic about um, making a family meal, sitting down at the table, and having it be for everyone, so you don't have a separate meal for the kids. And I think that's maybe something that's somewhat unique to the United States in that we have this idea of the kid's meal um, or right. the kid's menu and that they can't eat the same thing as adults. Um, and I wonder how you've you've dealt with that. Yes. So yeah, I have four kids and my oldest, I would say, unfortunately, we, we didn't know any of this information when he was a toddler, when he was growing up. So he had to kind of learn along the way. But with our daughters, ever since they were little, you know, we would introduce them to our um to our different fruits and vegetables and and have them feed themselves get dirty you know Mm. and um the more you expose children to different spices and flavors and a variety of foods the better they will be down the road they're going to be interested in all of these things and sometimes the first time they try it you know they might not be too crazy about it but if you keep exposing them to these healthy meals and this is what you have available they won't go hungry they will eventually eat them and incorporate them into their um into their diet so what we would do when we had little ones um we would put like if we made lentil soup put everything in a blender um, when they're, you know, they're starting to chew and little bits and pieces of food and cook with the spices, but not adding, you know, lots of salt or sugar or anything like that. So just keep the meals, um, pretty simple for everybody. But in, you know, in, in some countries they learn to eat spicy when, when they're really young. So it's just a matter of practice and just exposure. I can't say that enough. And also involvement. So you got to have the kids uh, be part of the whole process from exposing them to nature and plants and where all these foods come from, uh, growing a garden, to choosing, to going to the store and buying the items together, showing them the, um, you know, like what what a, a, a pineapple looks like, a mango, you know, what are these foods? Um, and uh, like talking about what you're going to prepare, having them pick and choose recipes uh, that we're going to cook together. So it's all, it's all part of the process. I think 
kids have to be invested. And if they grow it, if they cook it, they will eat it. That is so true. And I think that's something that people are starting to rediscover is both the joy of growing your own food um, and getting the family involved, but also how much more affordable it can be. And that you don't need like an acre of land to do it, right? You could do this in containers and you're in, Absolutely. you know, right next to your stoop in the middle of the city. Yes, yes. We have a great article at the center, you know, how to uh, grow your little square garden uh, with minimal uh, soil with, you know, minimal space. So you'll only need to really want to do it. And there are things such as uh, sprouts that you can grow at home very easily and um, incorporate them into your, your diet. There's greens <laughs> in the sprouts. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great one. Um, one of my mentors from Johns Hopkins, Jed Fahey is also known as the broccoli sprouts man. And he uh, is one of the pioneers in studying the anti-cancer benefits of broccoli sprouts. And they're a hundred times more powerful than broccoli itself. So there's actually Absolutely. more benefits yeah. to eating the sprouts and they're easier to grow than broccoli. They are, yes. And you can get so much more in there. Um, I love broccoli sprouts and lentil sprouts. Lentil sprouts are the easiest sprout to grow. Anybody can grow these. You don't need any <laughs> any uh, specific equipment, just a jar, water, a, a strainer. I mean, they're very easy. I always grow those. Excellent tip. So one of the questions that we've been asking folks since um, we began quarantining last year was, what do you think people should have in their, their pantry right now? Ooh, what, what do I think people should have in their pantry? Well, uh, definitely uh, staples such as beans, dry beans, dry uh, grains, different grains, so quinoa, uh, rice, um, oats, just those are like basic staples you need for every, almost every day cooking different meals. Of a, when I said a variety of, of beans, um, chickpeas, lentils, um, you can, uh, well, I guess this wouldn't be in your pantry, but in your refrigerator, you know, frozen, uh, fruit, frozen, um, vegetables also, spices a variety of different spices anywhere from um, your garlic powder onion powder to turmeric and um, smoked paprika you know those are very the good, important the good ones <laughs> mm -hmm. yes I'm into um, cloves and cinnamon love to add them to my uh, sweet dishes or my tea so I, I do a lot of those and fresh herbs. Those are so important. People think of them and as easy just to like grow, easy to grow. And, and think of them as a green, not only as a little uh, garnish, yes. it, it should be part of like, you know, your main meal. Um, I eat cilantro like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I feel like other cultures, like the non-standard American cultures are much better at that um, in terms of, you know, having like, like tabbouleh has tons of parsley in it and cilantro is in almost everything in a lot of the Latino cultures. Um, but in the States, we're kind of, I don't know, a little shy with our herbs. Yes. Yes. And, and variety diversity is important for our gut microbiome. And we really want to uh, try to have at least 30 different foods in, in our um, diet per week. 30 different plants, right? 30 different plants. Yes. Plant-based foods. So, you know, th write them down and see how you're doing. Kind of assess 
uh, how your your diet is throughout the week by writing it down. We forget from one day to another, but if you write it down, you're like, oh, how am I, am I eating enough greens? Am I eating enough uh, spices and herbs? And um, ginger is another one that's uh, I always add to to my recipes. And sometimes you don't think think of adding it, but you know, once you add that hint of flavor to your salad, or it could be even uh, with fruit like a fruit salad with, with mm-hmm. ginger and, and lime takes it to another level for sure. That sounds delicious. And I just want to make a note for all of those out there who are not familiar that that number 30 that you said is not just something you pulled out of the air. It's actually based on research done from the America Gut Project. Yes. So that is that is a well-researched number. Um, and it seems to be pretty clear, at least from that one study that they did, that the 30 is the cut point. So get your variety of plants. Yes, very important. So what advice do you have for other healthcare professionals about cultural competency? I would say, um, you know, be modest, uh, ask the questions, be interested in your patient's story. So I think Mm. a lot of times we, you know, we can make assumptions, like I said before, be cultural assumptions. And even within one culture, two neighbors, you know, they could have different ways, how they go about their meals. Do they eat together? Um, you know, do they set the table? What's in their kitchen? Um, do they both work full time? Like who takes care of the kids? Do the, do the kids eat with you? So, you know, culture gives us a framework on uh, what to, how, you know, how to establish the, the questions and, and, and the treatment. But we really need to have that curiosity about this individual case in front of us. And, and also, you know, how does this relate to their personal experience? Um, so I, I think it's important that um, we identify, you know, with our own culture and understand that all these differences um, are part of, of, you know, being um, part of the, of the society and, how you you feel about your place in, in society also can impact your health. And so, you know, a positive attitude towards all of these differences and a readiness to accept those differences is important. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. And I think that hits very nicely with the integrative medicine approach. Uh, and it's, it's all about the patient-provider relationship and really forming a partnership. Um, so you can make that personalized plan that will work for them, their lifestyle, their whole family. Um, we always say, you know, if you come up with a great plan and you give it to them, but it's not something that their family will buy into, then there's no point because they're not going to do it. Uh, it's not sustainable. Yes. No, Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. Um, I also know that you're presenting at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine. Can you give us a brief preview of your talk? Yes. So, um, you know, I'm going to quote Dr. Campbell on this. A good diet is the most powerful weapon we have against disease and sickness. And this is what we're ready to be presenting. I'm working together uh, with Dr. Ana Negron and um be willing to be entertained and educated. We're going to be talking about the history of the different Latino cultures, because as I mentioned before, there's so many differences. Um, We do have some similarities that unite us, but we have to be cognizant of the differences Um, in our experience um, coming to this country and 
understanding, you know, uh, how all of the, um, the work that has been put together to form these, um, to strengthen the, the links with the, the people from Latin America. Um, we wake up every morning with lots of enthusiasm and curiosity and so inspired to create change. So we're going to share some of the projects that, that we're working on um, and the opportunities that we have been given. We are currently living in, in a, a pandemic and so many negative things that have happened you know, throughout this experience. But we also look at the positive things and, and the way that we're learning to connect differently um, and that what we feed ourselves can is so protective. So we have to um, keep that in mind. Uh, I know that social distancing and wearing masks is, is something that we hear on the news every day, but we don't hear about uh, our, our nutrition. We don't hear about our lifestyle. And this is something that we really should be talking about first line of treatment. Absolutely. Nutrition is foundational. You can't, you can't get past that. There's nothing to substitute for that. Absolutely. Well, I am really yeah. looking forward to hearing your talk and I'm looking forward <laughs> to attending the conference, which for those of you who don't know, it's July 15th through July 17th, 2021. Um, and you can sign up now at pcrm.org slash ICNM. That's ICNM. And we'll have all that in the show notes. Um, but it's three days with 30 of the leading nutrition experts, including Dr. Capo. Yes, I can't wait to see you all. And um, and, and learn from, from everybody that's participating. And the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health is very happy to be a uh, educational partner with PCRM again. That's right. Thank for the so third year yeah. in a row. Wonderful. Thank you all for the, for the, the work and, and, um, and, and, and just helping us spread the word. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us very much, Dr. Capo. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Lee Frame. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.